I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison. I am here with Andy Johnson, or at least a portion of Andy Johnson. You've had a rough go of it lately. How are you doing, Andy? Garrett, I'm doing well. I feel like a million bucks compared to where I was last year. I uh, or last week, coming out of uh, health and safety last year <laughs> protocols from uh, from the Masters. So it's been a uh, it's been a long last few days, but we're uh, we're back here. Good. Yeah, no, it's 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 great to have you back at uh, near full strength. Uh, so thanks for for being here today. Um, so today we are going to be talking about Pasatiempo, probably my favorite course, and and I'll get into why it's my favorite course. But is it up there for you as well? Just as a, a general impression? Yeah, I think um, I would. Yeah, I, it's one of my favorite golf courses. Would it be the course that I play every day? Probably not. It's a bit of a bit of a, a physical uh challenge for everyday place but in terms of bucket list golf courses and especially when you start to look at courses that anybody can play any day of the week Pasitiempo gets near the very top of the courses you must see before you die and i think in terms you could make a argument that of any American public golf course, you could make an argument that this is should be number one on your bucket list because of the significance of the architecture, the architect, and where it sits in kind of uh, American golf architecture. Its main competitor for that number one spot, I feel, for the public golfer would be Pebble Beach, right? I, I would say, I would actually argue, I think Pebble Beach obviously has... You know, the, the architectural significance of Pebble Beach is rather small in comparison. I mean, Pebble Beach's significance has been founded through its beautiful site and its historic moments of, uh, of championships that have happened there. Pasatiempo is probably the greatest architect of all time and public access and mostly almost everything there is original uh, of, of what what was built. I would say the place that rivals it, Pinehurst number two. Mm. In terms of architectural significance. Just so architectural we're speaking significant. I'm saying from pure design standpoint, I don't think because you could go play a lot of there's a lot of Bill Core or Tom Doak public golf out there. Like you could you know, beyond if you want to take banded trails and Pacific Dunes and put those as two places, right? But there's there's very there's very little public access Alistair McKenzie in America, and then with with Pinehurst number two, it would be you know one of maybe the the top Donald Ross golf course right where another legendary golf architect of the golden age uh, that you can go see. So from an architecture standpoint, I think you can make an argument this this should be number one on your bucket list. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would put it there. I would say that I am biased and, and just to give an idea of, of 
my relationship with this course over time, it was probably the first truly great golf course that I played. I played it when I was 13 or 14. I believe it was 1998 with my dad. This was prior to the work that Tom Doak and his team at Renaissance Golf Design did there. And so the course was, you know, had a ways to go before it could get to the course that it is today. But even then, it made such a massive impression on me. And throughout my life, I've had the opportunity to get back there a number of times. I lived in the Monterey area for a few years, and I would get up to Pasatiempo two or three times a year and play it. This is just one of my absolute favorite places to go. And I think it really is my favorite golf course. It's probably not the best golf course that I've played overall in terms of its capacity to meet its full potential, but just in terms of the place and the design and what it has meant to me, it's my favorite course, you know, that this is the place for me. And, uh, and so I, I truly love this golf course. Now we are going to have a honest and nuanced discussion of this course. It's not going to be all puffing Pasatiempo up because this course has some, some flaws and also the club has made a decision recently about the future of the course that there could be a debate about, you know, they're about to rebuild their greens essentially. And, uh, they're doing this with the best of intentions, apparently to, you know, restore some of the McKenzie features that have supposedly been lost over time. But there is a, again, an honest and nuanced discussion to have about that decision. So those are the places that we're going to go in this podcast. But I think first, we just wanted to talk about the course itself and some of the design features that really make it special. So why don't we start with the front nine? The front nine gets somewhat underrated because the back nine is so brilliant. And we're going to get to the back nine. But the front nine is really remarkable. Yeah, it's it's super good. I think the... The back nine obviously is one of the best nines in all of golf. And I think that's where you you get obscured a little bit. But the front nine is is kind of one of those instances where you sit and there's a lot of great holes on it. There's a really great stretch of holes. I think two through five is phenomenal. But what I always kind of go back to is, man, I wish one was the way it should be. I wish... Six was the way it should be. I wish seven was the way it should be. I wish nine was the way it should be. And that's what kind of holds me back from kind of truly loving the front nine. I, I always find myself, though, when I'm either in like the second fairway or the third tee or the second green, at that point, I'm just like, God, the front nine's really great, is what I always think to myself. Well, okay. So I've done a poor job of setting this episode up. We've kind of uh, <laughs> gone straight into talking about the golf course, but should mention it's an Alistair McKenzie design. It opened in 1929. It had an opening day where Bobby Jones played alongside a few other great players of the time, including Marion Hollins, uh, who was a fantastic golfer. And she was the driving force, the visionary behind the Pasatiempo project. She was also a very important figure in the building of Cypress Point Club. She worked for Samuel Morse, was the director of athletics, I believe, uh, for the Pebble Beach Company. Pasatiempo was Marion Hollins's baby. 
Marion Hollins was recently inducted into the uh, World Golf Hall of Fame posthumously, but it was a great moment to appreciate her incredible career and contribution to golf. Pasatiempo is at the center of that contribution. She was behind every decision about this entire development. And it really is a development. It's not just a golf course. It's also a residential community. And it was imagined that way from the very beginning. Okay, so that that's just laying some groundwork in case people didn't know about the backstory of Mackenzie and Marion Hollins. These are the major driving forces uh, behind this whole creation. Okay, so the front nine, it kind of has two sections, right? There's this upper section and there's this lower section. And in the upper section are holes one, nine, most of six, seven, and eight. And then the lower section consists of holes two, three, four, and five. The lower section is brilliant and very much intact. The upper section, those holes were originally designed to be have these big, wide, shared corridors. And since 1929, there have been trees planted to separate out the fairways. And so those holes no longer share fairways. They have their own fairways. And a couple of those fairways are pretty narrow, pretty restricted. And the holes just play differently than they were designed to play. And, and that's just kind of the reality. I'm not sure that's going to change. Um, and so there are some places in that upper section of the front nine that feel cramped. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's the I think the big question about the golf course is is what what makes what happens with those holes over the next, you know, 50 years. Obviously, the reason that they were planted was safety. Um, somebody lost their life on the eighth green from a wayward tee shot from the seventh. So they planted a bunch of trees to prevent that kind of thing from happening. As And there, there's a fence yeah, up there, too. You might want to yeah. do, you know, you don't want people dying on your golf course. And, um, you know, it, it, the thing about it is the trees really mask how good the greens are there. Like the sixth green is a terrific green, um, you know, with so many neat little kind of nooks you know, you have that left nook and then you have the back one that that part of the back that runs away there. Um, and what happens is that that hole gets so narrow that you lose the dimension of really wanting to push up and go for it because it, it's so narrow at, at the green because of the houses that came in. And then you have the trees on the right. And uh, and then the seventh, like the seventh is one of the best greens on the golf course. And it's really obscured by the trees. Make it, you know, opening that up would be make it such a fun little drive and pitch hole. And I, I think that 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 hole, you know, you wh when you're at seven green, the only reason I know this is because I'm flying a drone, you know, there. But the you're right next to the third green and the fourth tee, and it's really an amazing thing. Like you, you get spun around by that routing a lot. But it's a really cool little focal point, and you talk about the upper and the lower holes. You're effectively just on the ridge above those those greens there, and it's you're no more than fifty yards. You're basically there's just a house between you. Yeah, and what separates the upper section of the front nine from the lower section of the front nine is this hill, and the hill now has houses on it, and so it's a little bit hard to see the natural feature. But it is this little hill in the middle of this general downslope. 
and a bunch of holes play around this hill. So the second hole goes along the side of the hill. The third hole, a long par three, spectacular hole, plays back up into the hill. The fourth hole plays off of the hill. The sixth hole plays along the other side of the hill. The seventh hole plays back into the hill, as you were saying, and getting pretty close to the third green and the fourth tee. And then eight plays off of the hill. So in that way, this is sort of a classic McKenzie routing. He did this at Cypress Point. He did this at Valley Club, where there was a a hill, or in the case of Cypress Point, a dune, and a bunch of holes play into and off of it in different ways. The same thing was done at Pasatiempo on the front nine, but it's a little bit hard to see because of the trees and the development that has happened on the fringes of the golf course. But it's certainly still there. That principle of that routing is still there. What's interesting, too, is is that the back nine actually plays in and out of a valley, effectively. The focal point on the back nine isn't a high hill. It's actually a low valley, and everything kind of spires off of that. It, it, it is a meeting point. If you think about the back nine, the 10th, the 16th, the 12th, the 11th tee, the 13th tee, all of those, that area right there is at kind of a low point. Yeah. And well, the Barranca runs through the the lowest point of all. And so all those holes on the back nine center around that, you know, that low point where the water runs through. Um, so in any case, on the front nine, if you were to point people to a hole that you think represents the best of the front nine, where would you go? I really like the fourth. It's a short, shortish par four. Um, one of the things I like about it, it's got a, a few key McKenzie features. It's got the the layered bunkers that everybody likes to point out, the camouflage. It's got a bunker in the fairway that's probably about 90 yards away from the green, 70 to 90 yards. I don't know exactly off the, off the top top of my head. Um, and then it that bunker appears to be kind of like stacked right up against the greenside bunker and it looks from the tee like it's all one big bunker complex but in reality there's a huge gap between them and the greenside bunkers uh there's a bunker also short and right off the tee and what i think is really interesting about it and you you know kind of picked up uh, the latest time that we went around it and it's because you hit your shot over to the right i hit mine way up just short of that bunker, perfect spot. Uh, the the yeah, left, the one bunker. on the left. You hit yeah, yours over, yeah. kind of over the right bunker, but you know, kind of shorter off the tee. And we both had really good avenues into a right pin. And what was interesting was your shot. You were able to use a feature on the green, which is you know, it kind of is built up on the left to funnel your kind of slingshot your ball towards the middle of the green from that right side. Well, mine, I'm staring right down, you know, perfect angle to hit to that, to a middle right pin. And, uh, you know, it is, uh, you know, there's just different methods, different routes. And something I think with Alistair McKenzie is he's one of the few, not great players, truly great. Now he could get the golf ball around, but he wasn't a great distinguished amateur champion. And I think one of the things that that did was it created a sympathy for lots of styles of play. And he accommodated different types of players with different options of play. And that's a perfect example on the fourth is that being long and left is ideal. But 
if you're short and right, you're not out of the equation yet. You still have a shot if you understand the contours of the green. And that green's really cool. It's kind of got a left tier, uh, a front left tier, a, a right mid right tier that's depressed down into kind of a bowl and then a back right tier. It embodies those those McKenzie greens where that bowl pin is really gettable and everybody can kind of get at it. It looks harder than it is because it, you know, if you if you didn't understand the contours, you might think that's the toughest pin. But then that back right pin is so hard. It's such a small little target. So it's got this malleability about it where it's got these pins that are really difficult, really hard to get at and make birdie, but it's also got some pins that are really fun, funnel pins that you can make a lot of birdies with. Great hole. Now, the second green, the fourth green, the fifth green, all are really good examples, I think, of how McKenzie was designing greens when he was building Pasatiempo. And they have these kind of amoeba shapes to them where there are these little fingers that kind of extend out from the center of the green. And then there are bunkers that kind of fit into the notches that those fingers create. I know I'm mixing metaphors here, but just imagine these sort of amoeba shapes with bunkers kind of stuck into them. And a, a lot of the greens at Pasatiempo have these shapes and uh, it just gives a great variety of pin positions and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, now, in addition to the weird shapes that the greens have, they have wonderful contours as well. They're all very different. Um, this is a, a truly kind of memorable, wonderful set of greens. Yeah, the greens are, I think, on top of the the, the topography is jaw-dropping, but the greens are really, you could just spend so much time putting around, uh, hitting the different little sections, and, you know... It's the perfect example. I always talk about how hard it is to have bad holes when you have great greens and how great greens are fun to play from anywhere, like any yardage. If you put like truly world-class greens, you could play from 20 yards, you could play from 200 yards, you could play from 600 yards, and the hole's going to be fun because of the green. And I think about a lot of the greens out there and how enjoyable they would be to have in your backyard because they present so many different quirks and shots and in places where you can use slopes to to bank them off into little pockets you know there's easy spots there's difficult spots and i you know the greens have a wonderful variety and cadence to them they are intense let's let's not be you know let's not beat around the bush these are probably some of the most difficult greens to put on in the country just because of the combination of their slope as well as their different positions that that these pins you can find them in it, it just they have these pockets that are so hard to get at yeah they, they're almost sort of experimental and you know coming off of this podcast that I did with uh, Bob Crosby recently Bob was a contributor to the postmasters episode that I did and he talked about how Augusta National late in Alistair McKenzie's career was part of an attempt to find a kind of new way of doing architecture. You know, McKenzie at this point was looking for other options, ways to kind of change what he was doing. Now, by the time he got to Augusta, McKenzie had become convinced that golf courses that were built in the twenties just had too many bunkers. And, and he was looking for ways to reduce the number of bunkers. Pasatiempo does not reflect that 
mode of Alistair McKenzie's thinking. There are a lot of bunkers out there. They're very artistically presented, especially around the greens. There's a kind of excess to them, but, but a real beauty as well. So we're not, we're not dealing with a McKenzie who was kind of trying to limit the number of bunkers that he was building on his golf courses. But I think where you get the experimental nature of McKenzie's later career at Pasatiempo is in the design of those greens. They are just different from what he was building earlier. You just have to go look at Meadow Club, which is a beautifully restored course, a wonderful golf course. So I don't mean to slam Meadow Club for having uninteresting greens because they're certainly not that, but they're really, really different. And Meadow Club was built just really a few years before Pasatiempo. But by the time McKenzie got to Pasatiempo, he was just clearly looking for different ways to do things, you know, and, and these greens are, are a great example of, of that attempt, I think. Yeah. So one other thing that I picked up on having done, having played Pasatiempo a couple of weeks before the masters and then spending a week there, I, I, you know, I'm particularly enamored with the ground contours that McKenzie built. They're all over the place at Augusta National, and a lot of them have been taking out, taken out, you know, some of them, and they are all over the place at, at Pasatiempo. And what I mean by that is, like, mounds that are by no means natural, but they were created to influence play. And there are these contours that they help you if you're approaching from the right angle. They hurt you if you're approaching from the wrong angle. But one place where... If you see an old photo of one at Pasatiempo, you see those beautiful mounds that were kind of littered the fairway, and particularly the right side of the fairway. And the obvious play was up the left, which is now a driving range, was the ideal play. And that got you kind of over by the left. There, there was that first Barranca really showed up there on the left side of one. But you saw all these mounds, and the mounds are still kind of there now. And those mounds are on the un, the safer line. And it's I just love the randomness of that. Like, oh, you hit it over to the right, you play safe, and you're in effectively a mogul field. It'd be like if you were doing a, a ski race and you know, you had one one route that was barren of moguls, but it's a much tougher route to take to get to. And then, you know, you have the safer, the wider, easier route to get to, but it's filled with moguls. And that's kind of like this, this you know, one as a fully restored hole, if they ever got rid of the driving range, would present. And and this, these are why the, I think the front nine comes up shorter of the, of the back nine is you look at things like that. One, the first hole is severely compromised from what it was. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast invites you to discover the greatness within Elijah Craig Small Batch. Elijah Craig Bourbon never settles for less than the best. Every bottle of their award-winning Small Batch carries a signature warm spice and subtle smoke flavor. It is exceptionally smooth and well-balanced. I like to drink it on the rocks. I'm a pretty simple guy that way, but I just like the cool bite of a chilled drink combined with the warmth of the bourbon flavor. I get complex aromas of vanilla bean, sweet fruit, and fresh mint. The palate is pleasantly woody with accents of spice, smoke, and nutmeg. Elijah Craig won double gold at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition last year and the Tried and True Award from the Ultimate Spirits Challenge in 2020. 
Pick up a bottle today or order online at drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com. And save $5 on a bottle of Elijah Craig delivered right to your door with code FRIEDEGG5. That's fried egg and the number five, all one word. The Fried Egg is brought to you by Elijah Craig Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, Bardstown, Kentucky. 47% alcohol by volume. Elijah Craig reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. All right, so why don't we get to the back nine? It's a brilliant back nine. It's it's just about close to perfect. What are some of the virtues of the back nine uh, that you think of first? I think just in general, the the variety of ways that a central hazard is used. So the central hazard is this barranca. It's a dramatic barranca. It's not a small little dried up creek. It's a canyon barranca variety. So it's it's wide. The the general variety in which this is used and the ways you play along it, over it, through it, in different parts of the back nine. So this is the central theme of the back nine is is this you're effectively your adventure or battle with the Barranca. It's going to ask you right off the bat to hit it over it on 10. And this used to be a much larger carry when it was a par five. So, you know, today it, it's not a huge part of it. But when the when the tee shot was in the middle of that parking lot, like it used to be, this was a imposing carry. And, mm-hmm. you know, the so you start with it and it runs up the left on that hole on 10 and up into the green. Uh, the the 11th, it cuts up the left and across. The 12th, it plays up the left and then in front of the green. So you're contending with it on a different shot, uh, different part of the shot. It's kind of, you know, on the approach, uh, you know, at the green as opposed to 11. It's, it's over early on and off the tee that you're dealing with it. 13, it runs up the left again. I guess one of the things that I would say is that it does run up the left a lot. Yeah. So that's the orientation of the nine. It, it kind of goes uh, counterclockwise. And so the Barranca is often on the left. Yeah. So 13, it's up the left. 14, it's up the left, but it's also in the fairway. One of the things I love with 13 and 14 is the way that Mackenzie brought the, the Barranca feature out into the golf features that weren't necessarily you know, Barranca features. So on 13, if you kind of look at the way he built that hole, the dramatic bunkering around the green is unforgettable, but really what that is supposed to do is to mimic the Barranca. So it's supposed to kind of feel like it comes right out of that Barranca on the left, which it it does a great job of like that. It's supposed to be resemble that. Um, And then on, on 14, it cuts across the fairway and makes just such a compellingly strategic golf hole with with the, you know, hit it over this on the left and you've got the perfect spot to hit a shot in, but you have to deal with, you know, you could lose your ball on the left. And if you don't clear over that that central fairway feature, which is kind of about probably like eight feet tall, um, you're going to have a blind shot with a potentially really awkward lie. And then uh, and then obviously 15 is is the par three in the Branca. And then 16, you're coming out of it with it up the left, and it cuts across the green again. And 17, you have it behind the green. And 18 is that one last shot over the biggest part of the Barranca to a green that sits right on the other side of it. You mentioned 17 and 18. 
they can be controversial holes. You know, if people are trying to uh, pick nits about the back nine at Pasatiempo, they'll often focus on 17, a shortish par four that a lot of people find somewhat undistinguished compared to the other holes. And then 18, which is a par three finisher, and people often don't like par three finishers. Could we briefly uh, say a couple of words about 17? I'm not saying it's the best hole on the back nine, but I think it's a really good golf hole that gets underrated. And especially if you haven't been there since they restored the green, since they extended that green all the way back essentially to the Barranca, it used to be a much smaller green. It had it had reduced to that size, but now it's this long, strange green kind of. I think it's kind of a cool hole. Yeah, it's super cool. I think well, here here are the reasons. The topography is is pretty sneakily severe. You play you're playing significantly uphill, but also that that slope, that side slope is pretty severe left to right. And you're hitting a shorter iron in, and it's this long, narrow green that presents a very hard shot for a shorter iron. Your tendency is to miss it short right. And with that lie and with that, that green, it's an awful shot to miss short, right? Because you're, you end up way below the green with all the slope in the, in the ground. So the green kind of sits high up. And if you miss short, right, you're kind of dead. And the other aspect is then it gets you to bail left. And if you bail left and you miss it over on the left side of the green, I cannot tell you that I've, I've had the putt probably three times and every time I end up like 10 to 15 feet past it is so unbelievably fast even when you know it's so fast it's almost impossible to not hit it past the hole so you end up I I also like that the green this long skinny green it's so different from every other green on the on the back nine and the whole course in general and those back pins are impossible to get back to. It is, it's a cool hole. I, it, it's a connector. Yeah, sure. It gets you to 18T. It's not 16. It comes like when you think about it in the stretch of holes it comes in, it's understandable why people feel like it's a, a, a miss. But there was no way you could build a hole set from 17 to 18 green. Without, without like blasting out the hillside. You'd have to like if you if you put not to pick on Tom Fazio, but I'm going to pick on Tom Fazio. Uh, if you put Tom Fazio out there and said, build a long finishing hole from 17 T to 18 green, then he probably would have blasted a valley through that through that hillside there to open up the visibility to 18 green. Um, but that wasn't really an option. And they decided not to do that here, fortunately. And the landscape is intact. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. So if you want to make that a hole like the that's the problem is that it would end up being this really awkward like for long hitters it would be fine but for anybody that's not a long hitter they'd be laying up to like the edge to where the 18th tee is just to have a shot at hitting like a fairway wood long iron into that green it would be a silly silly hole for for the vast majority of golfers and uh-huh. the the Barranca is like 130 yards wide at that point. Would you say that's that's about what it is? I think so. I, I mean, it's from like that forward tee to the green, effectively. What's that distance to the front of the green? Yeah, yeah. it's 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 about 130 yards 
just to get across the Barranca. And so if you're trying to build a par four where the landing zone is somewhere short of the Barranca and then the shot is across, there are a lot of players who are going to be in situations where, you know, they have to like hit a little, you know, pitch. Well, I've, I've, that's what I've seen my mom have to do this on numerous occasions. And, and I always like think about it. I'm like, what a silly golf hole is where, you know, sometimes my mom will hit a layup shot and the layup shot's not quite good enough and she has to lay up again. <laughs> right. And it's yeah. like, what, what yeah. are we doing? <laughs> that some people have to play golf this way and I could just blast it over it, you know? So I think that's the problem that you would run into. Um, the 17th hole, as it stands, though, is I would say it's not in my, it's not in my bottom five or four holes at, at Pasatiempo. Yeah, I think there are definitely holes on, on the front nine as they stand right now that are weaker. And I think that is an actively fun, cool golf hole to play. Now, the par three finisher. You asked me at one point, why do you think people don't like having a par three as a finishing hole? And I came up empty. I was like, I don't I don't know why. I'm not sure where that objection comes from. So I asked on Twitter and I got a bunch of responses and they were all, you know, it was a ni- actually a nice Twitter moment where where people were sort of explaining their preferences and nobody was judging anybody else. And and it, it didn't turn into an argument. It was just a very satisfying, you know, finding out of of people's opinions about this. And the most common responses that I got to this question were, one, a satisfying finishing hole on a golf course should assess all aspects of the game. So the drive, the approach, and the putt, and, and whatever other shots come, you know, as a result of poor shots or whatever, that it, it just feels more satisfying and more complete for a finishing hole to assess all those aspects of the game instead of just the approach and the putt. Um, another argument that people made against par three finishing holes is that par four and five finishing holes have more variance, more, uh, a greater variety of outcomes for the end of a round or a match. And so they're more dynamic. Another common response was that people just enjoy hitting driver on the last hole, just one last chance to smash it. Um, and then finally people were saying that a par three just feels like an abrupt way to end the round sort of like an anti-climax like you're being rushed out the door like here's the end oh there it is i i always think about the 18th hole the 18th hole is a means the first and the 18th hole to me are means to get away and get to the clubhouse those are the 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 ways i think about the first and the 18th hole and i rarely i you rarely see great first holes or 18th holes Yet everybody always likes to be like, uh, you know, I was the 18th hole. Like if the architect did his job, you know, probably should be just like kind of pedestrian unless it's like a unbelievable site with great holes everywhere. The 18th hole is probably going to be underwhelming. Like when I think about the great 18th holes, the truly mind blowing 18th holes, the one course that pops into my mind is Sandhills. And you know what? There's mind-blowing golf holes everywhere you turn out there. There's a million great golf holes, and they could have uh, – my impression of that project is that they could have put the clubhouse anywhere, a lot of different places. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. another thing. Uh, they, had, they had a huge array of options. Yeah. All right. Can we talk about the 18th at Pasatiempo? 
Yeah. Here's how I'll defend it. Let's talk it. about the what why is why is it a good golf? I, this is just this is a personal a lot of people use personal examples is, is there and I'll give you one with of me is that I was I think I was playing a, a match against Zach Blair, a friend of the program there, and it was a, it was a close match. It was t- we were tied going into the last hole and I remember you're standing on that tee and you you're just thinking god I got to hit a perfect shot here. I got to hit a truly great golf shot here because if I don't hit one, Zach's probably going to hit one. And from a match play standpoint, I think it puts the ultimate emphasis on hitting a golf shot in at the time and moment. And this golf course was designed when match play was the dominant form of game of the game. You know, Bobby Jones was the first person to play the golf course and he made his career and his fame playing match play and winning matches. And the 18th hole is a, as a finisher while it might, you know, let people down from a stroke play sense, if you're playing a match, it will not let you down. I guarantee it. If your match makes it to 18, it's so fun. It's it's like the best way to finish. And I remember I hit a shot that rolled up the slope or landed past the flag and spun down the slope to a true kick in range. And Zach did the same thing. And it was just oh, wow. like the most fun minute of of golf watching the two shots do it and it was you know we both executed the shot and and but you know an average shot there if you don't hit a great shot it birdie is is an easy task to accomplish if you hit a great shot there if you don't hit a great shot there fours and fives are easily in the ballpark like you know you're one misstep away from a double bogey or worse you can four putt that green so easily if you're in the wrong section of the green. Yeah. And, and if you're chipping from the wrong spot, you could be in, if you miss, yeah, say the pin's back dead. left and you miss long left, you might not even mm-hmm. be able to keep the ball on the green. Yeah. It's probably going to run off the front, yeah. front right. Yeah. So, for sure. So it, it presents this high variance situation for an end of a match, which is, it, it's thrilling. It's, and you're hitting over this Barranca. It's, it's symbolic because it, it's the, the final conquest of this hazard you're playing against all day. And it's like your last, you know, jolt of the theme and what makes pasta tiempo pasta tiempo. I, I agree. I think it's a, it's a thrilling last hole. It's a great par three. And that would address a lot of people's concerns. I think that, uh, you know, it's hard to play that hole and think that's an anticlimax or that's an unsatisfying way to finish my round. I mean, there's even a great walk that you do across the Barranca. You walk across this bridge and you have that moment of like the round is coming to an end and I get this one last wonderful walk across this bridge, across this beautiful natural phenomenon. And uh, and so I think a lot of people's concerns about the the way that a par three 18th hole might feel just anticlimactic are addressed just by the fact that this is a terrific final hole. That said, I understand some of people's arguments about not having a, uh, a a par three final hole. We had some really intelligent responses from, you know, Kevin Clark uh, saying, I don't care whether a pro course finishes on a par three, but when playing, I want to play a full hole and rip a drive one last time. It's the culmination of the day. Smacking one on 18 feels great. We have one from Cameron Ford, who's actually my cousin. Uh, I enjoy the longer walk on the last hole. 
um, at Chambers twice a week. They used to, he used to caddy at Chambers Bay. They used to start people on the back nine. So you'd finish on nine, a par three. The ending just sort of happened versus on 18 where you get to soak it in. I find those arguments like pretty reasonable and in a sense persuasive. But in the end, I think that they're all sort of overwhelmed by the principle of an architect should be allowed to find the best possible solution for the land that he or she is given. And so I'm just really glad that Marion Hollins, as the visionary behind this project, as the owner, allowed Alistair McKenzie to finish this course on a par three and didn't say, oh, no, we can't do that. That's, you know, th- try to think of any other great course that ends on a par three that that people wouldn't like that. I'm glad that she was open to the idea of this unwritten rule being broken. And I would hope that in spite of people's general and in some ways understandable preference for finishing on a par four or par five, that that preference isn't so ingrained that future owners, that future clients aren't telling architects, yeah, I know that having a par three 18th hole might be the best solution for this property, but we can't do that because people would reject it. The more we put golf architecture into a box, the more architects have to, you know, kind of work around these rules and reject what the best routings would be just because they have to achieve a certain par number, a certain number of holes, and this requirement that the 18th hole be a long hole. And and so I think that there is that potential danger of being too firm in one's preference for a non-par 3 18th hole. And I think that always the, the question should be, well, was it the best solution for the land? And if it is, then great. I No complaints here. I, you know, like, I think the most important thing you said there was putting architecture in a box because Pasta Tiempo is an example of architecture not in a box and an architect that wasn't afraid, wasn't afraid to experiment and try new things. Let's talk about the future of Pasta Tiempo. Oh, what a delightful, delightful topic. So uh, the club announced that uh, they would be undertaking a full restoration, which is, you know, a historical renovation, really, um, when you look at it. They will be taking the the greens that are original to 1929 in their current form, like they are uh, original greens. They have not been, you know, monkeyed around with. They are, they're, you know, they've been monkeyed around with a little bit over the years, but they are the original Alistair McKenzie greens and they will be rebuilding them. Uh, on top of this, they will be doing some, you know, they'll get new grass in the fairways. They will get new irrigation. They will rebuild bunkers. They will also do a significant uh, project on clearing out the barrancas. So overall, you know, this is a golf course that's investing in its product, which is overall, you know, generally a good thing to do. Uh, they have obviously seen a rise in popularity over the years, uh, recent years. They are, are charging a much more significant greens fee than even three years ago. Um, I believe now it's around $350 or so to play there. Yes. Uh, their membership, which is one of the most unique memberships in, in all of uh, golf, kind of oc- operates as, as a lot of NFTs operate um, now. Uh, where it's a you buy a membership share and you own the membership and you can sell the membership share 
for however much you want when you want out. So if you bought a membership, say in 2008, I think I've heard that they were going for like 25 grand. Today, these membership units are going for like 250 grand. And one of the unique with it being open to the public every day, what it does for the membership is that they never are going to be assessed ever. Their, their fees are capped effectively. Like this is what you pay every month and you're not going to get hit with charges beyond that. And, and then you own the membership. You can sell it for whatever you want. And the market value has obviously been going up for that. For example, this membership, because of their structure with the public play, which is why more and more memberships should allow for public play, is they aren't paying a dime. None of the members are paying out of pocket for this restoration, um, which will be a significant dollar amount. I believe the plan is to do one nine next year and the other nine the following year. So they will take one nine out of play renovate it and then they'll put the put the other nine take the other nine out of play the following year so what are your initial thoughts well i think whenever we hear the term restoration we get warm cozy feelings inside like this is great as you said they're investing in their golf course i think the barranca clearance might be absolutely huge that would be great oh one quick thing the the project's being done by Jim Urbina, uh, important to point out. And then this is with uh, Justin Mandon, their great superintendent at the helm. So yeah, Justin Mandon is uh, is fantastic. We spoke to him at length the last time we were at Pasatiempo. And then Jim Urbina has a lot of experience at Pasatiempo. He has been working with the course for years now. I, I, I believe that when Tom Doak's firm, Renaissance Golf Design, uh, started working at Pasatiempo, whether it was the late nineties or early two thousands, I'm not sure, but I believe that Jim Urbina was, was there pretty much from the beginning. Am I right about yeah, that? Yeah, I think he was the, he was the consultant, uh, that did the, you know, a lot of the groundwork Tom would come in and, you know, give notes and then Jim would do the work. Very few people are more deeply familiar with this golf course than, than Jim Urbina. And so it, it totally makes sense that he is overseeing this process. I think that where alarm bells were triggered for me in the past week, specifically on Twitter and regarding the official Pasatiempo Twitter account, is rhetoric like this. And let me just read. This is a tweet from at Pasatiempo Golf, which is the the official Pasatiempo account. It's not a parody account. Um, this account says greens are 93 years old and have never been rebuilt. Green complexes are not even close to the original design. Pin placement locations cut in half over the years due to sand splash buildup. Multiple Band-Aid solutions over the years, time to build to USGA specs. And then followed up with this, Greens currently not Alistair McKenzie Greens. We will restore them as close as possible to his original design. Work starts in April 2023. And that tweet was deleted because I, I assume that uh, Pasatiempo doesn't want people who are playing between now and April 2023 thinking that they're not playing on Alistair McKenzie Greens when they are. I, I agree with the, the sentiment here is that they have Alistair McKenzie Greens and, you know, they, this type of uh, rebuild to USGA spec has been done very successfully in the past. Look, look no further than Winkfoot. And I think from what I've heard talking to people in the area is that 
recycled water that they use, which is a big part of their maintenance program is their recycled water practices. Um, they have their own plant effectively that, that recycles wastewater from a nearby town. And that recycled water has been very, very harsh to the greens and has created an environment that's kind of unsustainable long-term. And that the USGA greens, because of the amount of play, which is like 60,000 rounds a year, because of the recycled water and then because of the, the climate, the USGA greens present the best playing surface for Pasatiempo the next hundred years. Yeah. And, and who are we to argue with that? Obviously, uh, Justin Mandon knows way more about the year round conditions of those greens than anybody. And, uh, and so it sounds like this project to rebuild to USGA specs has a coherent rationale behind it. Now there are those who would suggest that there are different ways to go about this kind of project. Now, I personally don't know enough about rebuilding greens and USGA specs and the different options available to architects and greenkeepers to speak authoritatively about this. But there are definitely those who strongly believe that the right way to go about this would be to strip off the sod of the current greens, clear off some of the sandy buildup that has happened there over the past 93 years, and uh, it, specifically, sand splash is a, is a, you know an issue that the club is naming as one that has affected the shape of the greens and has reduced uh, hole locations along the edges of the greens. Because when people play out of bunkers, obviously sand splashes on the green, and over time, those edges of the greens start to bulge up, and that affects the amount of pin positions you can put on a green and just the the contours overall. And so. You know, a suggestion would be just to carefully clear off that sand splash and then resod the greens and and keep the original builds in there. Now, the reason people would argue for this is that there is something about those original greens and Pasatiempo still has them. That's a relative rarity. It's it's pretty rare that someone has an original set of Alistair McKenzie greens. Original greens. 18 original greens. It's amazing. And they're awesome, awesome greens as we've talked about. And so the purist would argue, you've got to do what you can to keep those. And if it's possible to keep those and to do this work in a more kind of uh, low profile, low impact way, then you've got to do that. And there are a number of courses that that you could name that have used this process. Maybe the highest profile one is that I know of is Royal Melbourne. Which, which has another uh, great set of Alistair McKenzie slash Alex Russell greens. And this is the process that they use to maintain the original greens. Rebuilding the greens to USGA specs is a relatively aggressive way to go about this. And risky. And, and it's risky. It could go wrong. You have to rebuild them really, really well. And as anybody who has seen reproductions of certain kinds of artwork can can tell you like if somebody tried to re-sculpt the the you know the statue like a michelangelo sculpture then it probably just wouldn't look quite right now will jim urbina be able to recreate these grains as closely as possible i would say probably you know he's really really familiar with these grains 
But where my concern started to kick in is when the official Pasatiempo account was saying things like, these are no longer Alistair McKenzie Greens, uh, not even close to the original design. Well, of course they're close to the original design. They are the original design. And so I would hope that those uh, that people in the club have a really keen regard for what is currently in the ground at Pasatiempo and that everybody takes a super close look at what is actually there before they go about this process of rebuilding. Now, of course, I think Jim Urbina is going to do that. Of course, I think Justin Mandon is going to do that. But it's also important that the narrative within the club is not we have strayed way far away from Alistair McKenzie's greens and we need to rebuild them because they're junk right now. The narrative is we have an amazing set of original Alistair McKenzie greens. We're going to be so careful in the way that we reproduce them. We need to rebuild them in this way because of X, Y, and Z, but we understand what we have. That would be a more reassuring message, I think, out of the club. Yeah, yeah, I think it would be. And I think, you know, when it comes to these types of, you know, decisions, this this is, it's just a, it's a risky one. That's the thing. I think it all comes from, you know, a love of, of that what's there right now. It, understanding it's a you know world class set of greens right now, um, and I think a lot of this centers around the idea of of expectations with with maintenance and where it's gone, and the idea that every green needs to perform identical to the last green, which I think is a bunch of bullshit, and the idea of uniform conditions around a golf course, especially a golf course like Pasa Tiempo, I think is a fleeting race it's a race to the bottom it's uh it's conveying that like the game should be fair uniform and fair i think the last thing you want to do at, at pasta tiempo is create uniformity that it i love the way it looks it's got this wild kind of hodgepodge turf look that i think they're gonna keep um you know you want that place to look old you want it to be different and i think one of the things that's that's masked in all this, this idea of, of finding more pins is that inevitably there is going to be a softening of greens out there because of their, you know, there aren't pins right now at the current speeds that are maintaining it. And I think the club, you know, it was on display at the Western Intercollegiate last week. They keep the greens probably about four to five feet too fast uh, for that tournament. You know, this is a, a course that could be a leader and, and say, Hey, we've got Alistair McKenzie original greens and we're going to keep them at eight mm-hmm. and we're going to have a lot of pins. You're going to, they're going to be slower on uphill putts than you're used to putting, but they're going to be really fast on downhill putts because you're never going to see as much slope in, in putts as we, we offer here. And I think that's the thing when I read everything that they're doing, that's mass is that this is a convenient way to soften slopes on certain greens that have become completely unpinnable because of the green speeds that are expected of the membership and uh, to charge $400 around. That is the the kind of dark lingering concern here. And I, I guess we'll just see where it goes. And it would really be tragic to see the slopes of these greens softened because that is so much part of the character of this course. And, you know, furthermore, People can point to successful rebuilds of greens. You know, 
winged foot's greens are are famously were rebuilt and are are still terrific. But the thing is that Pasatiempo is not winged foot. Yeah. Winged foot is an entirely different type of club with a a very wealthy membership that they assessed for that project. Pasatiempo, you know, makes ends meet off of these memberships and off of public tea times. And those green fees have gone up over the past several years. You know, five years ago, they were about 250. And on a certain tea time app, you could reliably find about $110 tea times at Pasatiempo. It was very possible for me as a high school teacher to go up there two, three, even four times a year and play that golf course. If the green fees keep creeping up, then it's going to start to become a totally different kind of golf course. And if, you know, that's the membership's call. If they want to be more a golf course where people make it a once in a lifetime destination and pay a premium for the experience and travel from far places to come play it, then I think that the quality of the course justifies that, that they're going to be able to get that kind of business. But Pasatiempo for years and years and years, part of its charm is that it has been a little bit rugged. It has been an old feeling course, and I hope that it doesn't just feel kind of like brand spaking, shiny new. I hope it doesn't look like Wingfoot. I hope it looks like Pasatiempo. It's got yeah, it it's it's gotta retain its old feel. I think the the thing that gets me about potentially softening greens is is losing the aspect of the wildness of Pasatiempo. Is that is with the Barranca, it's a it's an adventure. It's not a it's not a round of golf. It's a, it's an adventure against the elements, and that's the key to the golf course. It is is what you're going up against is always not fair, and it shouldn't be fair. And I think that a lot of this centers around the idea of fair and modern maintenance practices and beliefs that that um you know from memberships and public play that green should be. X speed if I'm paying this much for my membership and this much to play around a golf. That said, we'll see how it turns out. It could turn out great. I know that I'm going to go back there and play for as long as I'm able, <laughs> as, as long yeah, as they'll me have too. me. Uh, um, I mean, it, it is such a, a wonderful golf course. Um, great to discuss it with you, Andy. Thanks so much. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. I'd like to include a plug here for the Fried Egg Pro Shop, which you can find at proshop.thefriedegg.com. Available right now in the Pro Shop is an aerial photo of all 18 greens at Pasa Tiempo. It's pretty cool. So check it out at proshop.thefriedegg.com. And thanks for listening.